Well, we are going to finish up our Frequently Asked Question series. One of the, uh, how we did this was we kind of said, hey, what are the questions you would love for us to talk about on a Sunday morning? We saved the most asked question for the end. Uh, by far, the most uh, responses we got had to do with the end times. And so the question we're going to ask today and try to answer is, what will the end times be like? And I just want to tell you up front, as I begin to study uh, pretty hard on this subject, I figured out the exact day and time Jesus is going to come back. So I'm going to tell you about that in the end. I'm just playing. The Bible says that anybody says that. They're a liar. So uh, don't listen to that. Um, but what we are going to try to tackle, right, are the objective things, regardless of where you fall and all the different spectrum of what you could believe about different things, we're going to go, hey, here are some very solid events that the Bible talks about, and we're going to look at those, because we can know what the Bible says, and then you can figure out, hey, is this just symbolic? Is this literal? Is this whatever? I don't care what you do with all that, but what we want to know is, and what has God given us in his revelation to know and, the, and so that we can be ready and that we can also rejoice with hope this morning. Now, I'm going to start with like a three-minute, give you some big theological words. So if you're in the room and you're like, man, I want the theological stuff, this is your moment. Uh, we're going to be jumping through Scripture. We'll, really, we're going to do an overview of Revelation in 30 minutes, which is impossible. Uh, but we're going to attempt it. And what I'm going to try to do is give you the major themes. And so hopefully this will give you some clarity and understanding of some things you've gone, oh, I didn't really know what that was. I've heard about that. But here's just a moment, three big-time uh, theological sections of what we look at, okay? Uh, the first is this. There are four views of, of how to read Revelation. In other words, when you read it, there's categories that people fall in of what they think the book of Revelation, how it is written. So I want to give you those. The four views are this. There's an idealist view, a, a preterist view, a historicist view, and a futurist view. Now, what those mean is this, okay? So when you open up Revelation, if you're an idealist, what you're going to say is, hey, all of this is allegory or symbolic of, of what's happening in the church. It's kind of the struggle of the church, like us today and the struggle against good and evil and the gospel going out. That's, that's what an a idealist view is. I don't hold that view, but that's a, a view. There's a preterist view, and that would say that most of Revelation, except for Christ coming and finishing everything, happened in the first century church with the Jews. So like the apostles and all those things, a preterist view would say everything that's in Revelation minus Jesus coming and, and defeating everything has already pretty well taken place. We're just waiting for the end. There's a historicist view, and this has actually gotten, it was really popular, and it's not popular very much at all anymore because no one could agree on what it was that said what it was, but their idea is, hey, when we look at Revelation, what you can do is you can go through history and you can find, okay, the Reformation, this was the symbolic thing that was talked about in, in Revelation in the church and all the different places of, of massive church history moments, they go, it's all talking about that. Uh, but they've all kind of gone, man, we all argue, and so maybe we're wrong on that. And then lastly, there's a futurist view, um, and this is where I'm going to lean. And so what it, what it would mean is this, the first three chapters of Revelation kind of talk about the church and, and what's going on today in the church age, and the rest of it is yet to come, right? We're waiting on some future events that, that Revelation talks about, and, and we also in this view would say, we're, we're going to take things as literal as possible. If God says there's a thousand year reign in, in Revelation, then there's a thousand years of reigning. So that's a futurist view. Those are the four views, idealist, preterist, historicist, futurist. Uh, the next that probably you've heard a lot about are, are the views of the rapture, right? When the church goes up, 
And you've heard these, right? Pre-trib, post-trib, what, what is it? So here are the four views. There's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, and post-tribulation. And so pre-trib would say that the church, the rapture, will happen before the big seven years of tribulation. That's pre-tribulation. Uh, you have mid-tribulation, and that sounds like exactly what it is. Three and a half years in, before it gets really, really bad, the church is going to go up. It's called pre-wrath, or pre-wrath rapture, and that would be, and we'll talk about, about this, but God pours out seven, uh, seven trumpets, there's seven bowls, all these different things, and right before the bowls happen, the church goes up before it gets really bad. And then there's post-tribulation, we all go through the seven years, we suffer together, and then Jesus returns. And so those are the four views of the rapture. Lastly, there is what the Bible talks about, and we'll talk about this as well, a millennial reign, a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign. So the three views of that is all millennial, and they would say there's no such thing as like there's not going to be a millennial reign. That's all figurative, and really we're in it now. Like the church is in the millennial reign right now because Christ came. There's post-millennial, which would say Christ comes back after the millennial reign, which doesn't really make sense because he's the one reigning in the millennial reign. So I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. And then there's pre-millennial, which is where I'm going to fall. And that's that Jesus is going to come back. And then, the, then there will be this millennial reign. Now, that was a bunch of stuff. Some of you are like, oh, that was great. I got to write it all down. Some of you are like, okay, I'm already done with this sermon. Sweet. Uh, regardless, <laughs> we've put together a picture that I think will help you and I. I'm pretty proud of this. Uh, we stole some of it, and then we made it our own. And so this picture right here is going to be up for the, the entirety of this sermon, okay? And what we've tried to do is put this in a way that's really easy to follow events. Now, I, I want to tell you what we're going to walk through is, is what would be called a futurist, pre-trib, pre-millennial view of the end times, okay? So um, that's where we're following. This is a pretty normal, kind of been around forever. It's kind of the most popular one. And here's what I'll tell you. Maybe these arrows move in different places. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to tell you what I think. And we're going to talk about specifically these things that scripture is very clear about. And so it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, but we're going to jump in and we're going to walk through this. This will be up most of the time so you can kind of follow along. And hopefully uh, this will help and be encouraging to you um, as, as we go through it. And so with that being said, we're going to start on the far left of this timeline. And you can see the cross, right? And so the, the first advent that we celebrate at Christmas is Christ's first coming. And so he comes down and um, as, as humble and meek and mild, he dies on the cross and he resurrects up to heaven and that starts, you'll see a dove coming down. That's when the Holy Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, right, he said, hey, go up to the upper room. I want you to pray, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power. And the moment that happens in Acts 2, where all of a sudden now the Holy Spirit of God is living in disciples, is what begins the church age. You and I are in the church age, okay? So the Holy Spirit came. That was 2,000 years ago. And we just continue on this progression until eventually the rapture is going to happen. Now, here's what I can tell you. We are a day closer today than we were yesterday to the first event. And so as we move now, here's what we've got to realize. Jesus and Matthew, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago. On the Mount of Olives, he gave the Olivet Discourse. And the disciples asked the same question. They were like, 
man, how are we going to know? Like, when's the end coming? When, how do we know, Jesus, when we're getting to this end part of the timeline? And he's like, look, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And he's going, this is just the birth pains. It's just the beginning. There's going to be tribulation and there's going to be many turn away. This is just the birth pains. It's getting ready for me to come back and to make all things new. And so we're kind of living right now in the church age and in these birth pains. We're seeing these things and we're going, man, things aren't right. There's always kind of unrest. And these are the birth pains leading up to whenever Jesus decides to come back. And so with that being said, we're going to start with the rapture. Uh, The word rapture is not in the Bible. Uh, But there are two particular scriptures that talk specifically about what the rapture is. The first, and and probably the easiest to understand, is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And we'll have these on the screen. You can write them down. Go back and read them. If you want this slide, we can get this to you eventually too. And you can kind of go through this. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, right? We hear this at, at funerals a lot, like we get to grieve in a different way as believers. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is death. So he's going, Jesus is going to bring with him those who have died, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's what's going to happen, <laughs> as best we can understand. At some point... Church age ends, rapture happens, and what Jesus does is he comes to the cloud. He doesn't come all the way to, to earth, comes to the clouds. There's a big trumpet blast. Everybody in the world knows this is happening. And if you are in Christ or have been in Christ and passed away, it says first the dead are going to receive their resurrected bodies. And I don't understand all this right, but we're saying, hey, dead bodies are going to resurrect from the ground. The soul and the body will be reunited for the de- the, those who have passed away, and they will get a body like Jesus, a resurrected body, one that won't die. But it's a physical body, which is pretty amazing, right? Like, it's still a physical body, but it's new and it's perfect, and it, and it will never fade. Once that happens, then all of us that, if we're here, we're going to be like, what's happening? This is crazy. And then all of a sudden, we're going to go up and meet these that have come before us in the air, and we'll receive our new bodies as well. This is the rapture. This is something that Scripture is pretty clear is going to happen. When it happens in this timeline, you just have fun with that. I think it happens here. I hope it happens here because I don't want to be in the tribulation. But regardless, this is the rapture. The next part seems scary But it's actually awesome. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. If you'll look up here, there's two judgments. There's the judgment seat of Christ that us as Christians are going to. And then we'll get to the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, you may have heard it called the Bema seat judgment. Now, the first thing we have to realize is this, which is pretty amazing. God has left Christ in control of judging all of humanity. Like, he's the one that gets to do it. In fact, in John 5, verse 22 and 24, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son 
just as they honor the Father. God the Father said, hey, hey, Jesus, you're in charge of all judgment because I want all people to honor you. And it says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And then it says he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So those that have placed their faith, hope, and trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, starting the church age, we rapture up and we're at the judgment seat. And what's pretty cool is it says, you and I aren't entering into judgment. So what in the world is the judgment seat about then? The word judgment in Greek is, is bima. That's why it's called the bima seat. Uh, the, a bima was like a platform uh, that judges would stand on during athletic games back in the day. And so their job was not to judge like good or bad. What they did was actually dispense rewards, right? And so they would have some athletic competition. Uh, the athletes would come stand in front of the bema seat and he'd be like, first place, second place, third place, here's a wreath, here's money, here's whatever. You, you've won the reward. And so what this judgment seat of Christ is for you and I is, is, is not a judgment of our sin. That's been dealt with. Praise God. Praise God that in all this stuff where there's going to be some hardcore wrath poured out on the sin of man, we don't experience that. But we end up, we're in front of Christ at this bema seat judgment. And here's what the Bible says it will look like. Uh, Paul gives us a really pretty great picture of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 through 15. Here's what he says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid with Jesus Christ. That first part is this. Look, salvation is in Christ alone. He is the foundation. Now, what we're about to talk about, though, is if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian in this room, what we're about to talk about then is how did you steward every moment of your life as a believer is about to go on this foundation. So we can't build a different foundation, but he says in verse 12, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, things that will not burn up in fire, or maybe wood, hay, or straw, things that will burn up with fire, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Right? These, this talks about all through the New Testament, this idea of these crowns that the Lord's going to give to his, his children at, at this moment. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here's what this is saying this is going to look like, as best as I know. It'll be my turn. My life as a believer is going to be laid out on this, on this foundation. It's going to be burned up and sift away. And there will be a lot of useless things that are going to just fade away, wood and straw and hay. But I'm hoping <laughs> that there's this vast majority of gold and silver and precious metals that, that last, that my life actually meant something for eternity, that I use the things that God has given me through the power of his spirit, that there's something left. And he says at that point, he's going to pass out rewards for how we lived our life. And it'll be sobering. You know, it's going to be like, man, look at what I did as a believer. Like, how much time was wasted. But it's also going to be, man, look at these things that last for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that you allowed me to be a part of this. But he, he is saying, if you look at the last, right, anyone whose work is burned up, he will suffer loss, 
though he himself will be saved. There's a reality too. There's going to be Christians standing in this moment before King Jesus, and there's not going to be anything left. Where he's going to burn up your life, and he's going to go, nothing. And it says you're going to suffer loss. And here's what I think that is. I think this is all the connotation of when Jesus talked about, hey, um, in the parable where he said, hey, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. I, I think this is, is what this looks like. Our lives are burned up. What's left? He goes, man, well done. Enter into the joy and the rest of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. And there, there's going to be some where he's going to go, Man, there's nothing. You suffer loss. There's no reward. There's no well done. But praise God, you're in Christ, and so you still are saved and enter in. This is a sobering reminder that as believers, man, how we spend our life matters. It's important. And so we have this judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. We'll get to the marriage supper in a second. In between all this, the tribulation starts. Church is gone. If you're a believer, gone. So what is left then is the seven years of God pouring out his wrath in a way that has never been seen before. This is going to be some of the most horrendous, horrible times that the world has ever seen. The church is gone and God just begins to like pour out things. There's two things he's trying to accomplish. He's wanting to pour out wrath on uh, the enemy, the antichrist, the beast. We'll talk about those, right? All the things. But he's also trying to discipline Israel so that they'll still turn back, right? Israel are God's chosen people. And so he's going, man, I'm going to use the tribulations to hopefully pull them back to me. And so I want to give you just a kind of shotgun approach to some of the things you need to know about the tribulation. The first is this. I think everybody's heard of this before. The Antichrist or the beast, right? Those are the same thing. If you heard beast, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, all the same stuff. Here's what you need to know. He's going to rule. During this time, he's going to demand that he is worshipped as God during this time. And there's going to be most of the world do that. So what that means is even though we hear the word beast, we're like, is he a monster with horns? I don't know. You know, He's going to be a guy that most of the world would look at and go, he's worthy of worship. right? He's not going to be some weirdo. <laughs> he's not going to be some six-headed dragon. It's going to be a dude that everybody goes, this may be Jesus. This may be God, and we're, we're going to actively submit to him and worship him. And so this is the Antichrist or the beast. Now, the Bible in Revelation talks about a second beast that comes up. And, and so this second beast is the Antichrist's prophet. Satan's going to raise up this prophet. Dude's going to have some crazy abilities because of Satan. It says he's going to be able to call down fire from the sky, and he's going to do all these signs and wonders, and, people are, and he's going to go... This is God. This is the one you should worship, pointing to the Antichrist. And at that point, at some point in the tribulation, they're going to demand that every single human being worship him or you die. And that's the mark of the beast. And it says we'll get it on the forehead or on the hand. And it says it's the number of man, 666. So I, I, people have been trying to figure that out forever. Who knows what that is? Who knows what it looks like? But everybody in the world is going to have to have this in order to buy food, uh, to buy shelter, to get water. And if you're not wearing it, you've got a demonic army that's coming to kill you and persecute you. It's a horrible time. And most of the world, it says in that time, is going to follow this. Right? Even those that go, I don't think he's God, but I need food and water, are going to bow down. And it says that wrath will come on those that take the, the mark of the beast. Now, in this time, God sends two prophets, 
Um, and these two prophets, everybody, who knows? People think it may be Elijah and Moses coming back. Nobody really knows. But they have the ability to preach the gospel, call down kind of the wrath of God, like old school prophet in the streets, yelling and doing all the things, and everybody's listening. And it says that no one, even the Antichrist, will have the power to stop them until they fulfilled their stuff. And then there comes a point where they're put to death, and it says that the entire world is going to see this happen. Like they're gonna, their bodies are going to be left in the street, and the whole world is going to watch for days as their bodies in the street. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that we we've now live in a time where that's possible, right? It's one of the first times in history that it's like, no, every single human being could see something live instantly, even if there's not a camera crew there, because someone, all someone has to do is go live on Facebook. I think that's interesting that that is at least something that could happen now. And after these dudes have laid in the street for two days dead, the Bible says that they're going to be resurrected and ascend into heaven, and everybody's going to see this happen. And during this time, who's heard of uh, the 144,000 Jews? Have y'all heard that before? Okay, so this is a point now where Israel kind of turns back to God. And so, right, Israel's, most of, uh, of Jews in the world have said Jesus was not the Messiah. And so part of the tribulation is God going, no, you missed him the first time, and so I'm going to give you this opportunity to turn back to me as my people. And, and I believe that these 144 Jews are just the first of a great multitude of people that turn back to Jesus during the tribulation. These are the ones that are hiding in the clefts of the rocks, the ones that are going to have to suffer and die because they don't take the mark of the beast. There's going to be many people come to Christ during the tribulation. I think the 144 are just the beginning of that. Now, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. What in the world are those? Those are the moments that God starts just getting after it. And I want to read this to you for a second because, man, in Mark, Mark talked about what these moments are going to be like, and it's sobering. Here's what Mark 13, 19 through 20 says. It says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now. Noah's flood was pretty intense, and he's going, worse than that. Sodom and Gomorrah was pretty hardcore, and he's going, that, that was nothing. And it says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. He's going, it's going to be so catastrophic that if he didn't cut short seven years, no one would be saved. But because of the, the Israelites and the people that will be saved, he says, man, for their sake, I cut this thing short. And so the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are the things that God pours out in those seven years, and they just keep intensifying. And so we're not going to jump in for a long time into these. I'm just going to, like, rapid fire. Here are the things that happen. The seals get broken. There's seven of them. And here's what's going to happen in the seven seals. Warfare, famine, plague. There's a great earthquake, there's astronomical upheaval, and the revealing of the Antichrist. So it's, it's going to be bad, but man, it gets progressively worse every single time. The seals lead into the trumpets, and the trumpets are hell and fire destroy plant life. Literally, plant life all over the world will be gone. That's going to make it hard to eat during these times. It's probably going to make you want to put on uh, the mark of the beast so you can get some food. Death of much of the aquatic life the darkening of the sun and moon, demonic locusts that torture the unsaved, and then a march of a demonic army that kills a third of humanity. 
So the Antichrist and his prophet are going to put together an army and literally destroy a third of humanity during this time. And then we get to the bowls and it gets real hardcore. And this is that pre-wrath tribulation. This would say, hey, this is the point the church leaves before it gets crazy. So the bowls are poured out and it starts with painful sores that afflict all of humanity. Uh, The death of every living thing in the sea. Uh, Rivers turn to blood. Intensifying of the sun heat. The sun's heat is going to be so hot we've never experienced anything like it. Great darkness and, and then an intensification of the first sore. So those sores are just going to get worse. Every, every living human having these sores all over their body, they just get worse. And then there's the advance of the Antichrist army to prepare for the, the battle of Armageddon, this last battle. And there's a devastating earthquake with giant hailstones. And I'm just telling you the softball stuff that, that jacked up all of our stuff is going to be nothing compared to these hailstones. It's going to be horrifying. And so at that point, this is, that, that's a brief overview of tribulation. And so we're going to jump back up now. We had the judgment seat as Christians. Let's talk about one of the most beautiful things of this whole thing, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is going to be incredible. <laughs> so the marriage supper of the Lamb is this moment, right? We've, we've raptured up. We've had our lives kind of judged, and he's gone, here's the rewards, here's the crowns. We have new bodies that never die, never fade, don't hurt, no more pain. And then we get to enter into this gigantic party with Jesus for a long time. And it's this picture of, of, um, if y'all remember, uh, there's the parable of the ten virgins that were trying to keep their lamps up with oil, and and the groom came, and some of them missed it. But the groom comes, grabs the bride, takes them to this marriage feast, this week-long feast. This is this picture. And look, look what Revelations 19, 6 through 9 says about this. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the, sign, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has, been, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe her with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. This is huge. <laughs> write this down, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And so what you have is the church has always been called the bride of Christ. And so you and I, as the church, if you're in Jesus, you are part of the bride of Christ. And the groom is going to come, and he's going to say it's time. And he's going to array us and find linen and righteousness, and he's going to enter into literally, like legitimately, I believe, we're going to have a physical body, and we are going to go party with Jesus and eat and drink our fill for years. It's going to be one of the greatest things that could it possibly be a part of. And every single Christian that has ever come before us, anybody that has put their faith in the Lord, we're going to gather together, we're going to worship, we're going to eat good food, and it's going to be unlike anything we have ever experienced. And we're going to be clothed in his righteousness. And it's going to be amazing. And that's why the angel said to John when he's writing Revelation, hey, bro, blessed is he whose name It's an invitation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we have this beautiful moment. All this craziness is happening. We're just having a good time. And then we get to the second coming. And the second coming is the moment now 
where when you hear about Jesus coming back again, this is more probably what you think about. This is where Jesus splits the sky and it's going down big time. And so let's look at this for a moment. Second coming of Christ, one of the most powerful scriptures, I think, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, talks about the second coming. No more meek and mild, no more riding on a donkey, no more coming to die so that people can be saved. Jesus is coming back and it's going down. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he, judge, he judges and makes war. Right? His righteousness, his, who he is, his character, he is now coming to judge all of the evil of the world. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name written that no one knows but himself. I love this, man. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ comes with a robe dipped in blood, riding on a horse, and it says this, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, that is the angelic armies. That's you and I with our new bodies and this, this clothing, this white linen clothing that we just got done feasting together. We're on these horses. We're coming in. I've always hoped. I, I, we're not even going to fight, but I just really want a giant sword in that. I'm like, if we're on a horse, might as well have a giant sword coming in. We're coming in together. Verse 14, in the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white for, uh, horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus speaks in this moment, this massive demonic army in the battle of Armageddon. We're coming in behind him. We get to talk noise because we're with our big brother, and he speaks, and it's done. And I love this last part. It says, <laughs> he will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus coming back, riding on his horse. On his robe, it says, King of kings, lords of lords. He's got a tat on his leg that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. And we're coming in, and it's going to be crazy. And he's going to speak and destroy all evil in a moment. And so this, this Armageddon battle, no one really knows exactly where it's going to be. A lot of people think it's going to be in the plains of Megiddo, which is like 60 miles outside of Jerusalem, this big valley. And here's what happens after that battle. Jesus cast the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet into the lake of fire. First people to go in the lake of fire, Antichrist and the false prophet. And then it says that he takes Satan, and I don't understand why and how and what all is happening here, but he's going to bind Satan for a thousand years. Let's look at this for a second. Revelation 20, 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there's this idea. This is where we're getting into. Can I have that picture back just for a second? I'm sorry. Uh, this is where we're getting back now to the millennial reign. 
He's binding up Satan, puts him in this pit, seals it, says you can't come out and do anything, and we're going to have this millennial kingdom. And then it starts talking about it in verse 4. We can go back to Revelation 21 through 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so this is the millennial kingdom. We come back. Jesus speaks. He puts the Antichrist, he puts the prophet into the lake of fire. He binds up Satan for, I think, because it says a thousand years over and over. I don't think this is figurative. I think we're talking about a a, a thousand year time in history. And there's going to be this kingdom in Jerusalem that you and I, with our new bodies, along with all the saints, we're going to live on this earth. (laughs) This is crazy. I don't understand it. But the Bible says we're going to live on this earth together. As it still is, but now we're in this city fortified with Jesus as the, like a physical king for Israel. And all those Jews that came to Christ in the tribulation, they're, they're coming back in and we're worshiping. And there's joy and there's peace. The devil's been bound for a thousand years and we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Don't understand what it looks like. It's just what it says. And then there's this moment where he lets Satan out. And it says that Satan goes and he grabs the armies of the four corners of the earth for one last battle. Revelations 20, 7 through 10. Here's what it says. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the seas. So we're physically alive with Jesus in Jerusalem. We're living there. You and I, if you're in Christ, and this, this great army with Satan leading it like the sands of the sea surrounds the city gates. Verse 9, and they marched up over the, the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet, and they were tormented there day and night forever. And ever. So this is the moment that Satan is finally dealt with. And in the lake of fire is the prophet, the beast, and Satan. And then lastly, we move into the second resurrection and the great white throne judgment. And what this is in scripture, it talks about that literally the earth is going to give up every single human who has ever lived that was not in Christ, was not a follower. And they're going to go and sit before Christ for real judgment of their sin and have to give an account. And here's what it says. It's kind of sobering. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. Like this is such a terrifying moment that the earth and the sky flee from the presence of Jesus. And no place was found for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead. And this is, this is just sad. I saw the dead, great and small. We're talking about old and young, men and women and children, standing before this throne. And the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged in each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
So finally, death is defeated forever. It's thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so what we've got to realize is the majority of humanity, according to the Bible, the way is narrow that leads to righteousness, if you find it, the majority of humanity is going to stand at the great white throne and they're going to have to give an account for their life. And the only way to be with the Lord is perfection. And none of us get that. And so Jesus is perfect in our stead. And praise God, those who have accepted Jesus go to this judgment seat of Christ. But because of their choosing to not follow Jesus, their, their name's not going to be in the book of life. And they're going to be cast into hell with, the, with Satan, with the prophet, with the beast, to be tormented forever, day and night. Which should lead us and give us a pretty big fervor for our neighbors and our family members. Because this is real. And then finally we get to the new heaven and the new earth. And this is probably, the new heaven and the new earth is probably what you think about when you think about heaven. This, this earth has been waiting for this moment that the sons of God would be revealed. And so finally that happens after the lake of fire. And this earth is done away with and there's this new heaven and a new earth, physical place. We've got physical bodies. We're eating and we're drinking. We're with the Lord forever. And this is going to be the place that you think about when you think about the streets of gold. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. We're going to reside in this place for all of eternity with the Lord, and there will be no more brokenness. And every wrong that has ever happened up to this moment will be made right. Judgment will come. His wrath will be dispensed. And everything will be made right again. And we'll be with him forever. Now to end... Like, what, what does this matter to us today? Like, what, how do you respond to something like this? And he, here's what it moved me to this week studying. This is some sobering stuff. It's a reminder that, like, man, our life is a vapor in the wind. And, and regardless if you're a believer in this room or not a believer, we're all going to stand before the Lord in judgment, either at the Bema Seat or the Great White Throne. And so the first thing is this. Like, if you don't know Christ, in this church age, he's given you a moment to go get to be a part of these things and the marriage supper of the Lamb and with Him forever and ruling and reigning in a new heaven and new earth. Like, it's available today in Christ. And so that's our first step. It's like, man, I want, He, he has provided a way in His love for us to be with Him forever by accepting, accepting Him as Lord and King. But then lastly, man, for, for those of us that are believers, like, that idea of the Bema Seat's pretty sobering. Dude, because we long for our life to matter. And we long for it to count for something greater than today. Like in the end, our name's not going to be remembered. Our life will be burnt up. Your house will be like an old school house that needs to be torn down so someone else can build on it. Like all these things are going to happen. And the question for you and I is like, man, what have we done with our time for the glory of God? That when it's on this foundation of Christ and the fire burns it up, do we have some some things left where he goes, man, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into joy with me. I want that for my life. I want the rewards of my father. I want Jesus to say, man, you did well. I know there's going to be so much burn up, but I, I want to do well. 
So that's a push us to go, man, God has given us a short time, and this day is coming, and I want to stand there in in humility, and and, and I know it's going to be sobering, but have something left that I live for you, Christ. And then lastly, I think the most important thing for you and I is this. With all the hard stuff in this world, in the end, because of Christ, we win. We win over sin. We win over death. We went over pain, we went over evil, we went over wrongdoings, we win eternal joy, eternal hope, the eternal presence of God, we win. Because Christ has won. He defeated him all the way back here on the cross, and he finishes it over here at the lake of fire. And we win. And we get to be with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you have won the victory already, that, that what we're looking at is the future, and it's already written because you've already won. Thank you that you've left these things for us. There's so many intricacies, God, that we don't understand, and time may be different than we think, but God, I know that you've left us some things in your scripture so that we would be reminded that you're coming again, and that we will be with you forever And all things will be made right. And so this morning, God, I pray that as we respond for a moment, that if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you as Savior, that today they would give their life to you, that they would surrender to you and and say, man, I want to be saved. I want to be one of the redeemed. Not because of fear of hell, but because you've offered something so much greater. Would you open their eyes to see that this morning? And then I pray for those of us that are believers that we'd have hope and joy of our future hope of glory with you, but also that we would steward every resource we have now for your glory. And so would you move in us during this time? It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.